Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. I'm grateful to be able to worship with you this morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. And I uh, just want to say, if this is your first time here, or maybe you've come for a couple weeks and you are a guest of ours, uh, we'd love the chance to meet you. We would love to be able to thank you for gathering with us this morning. And the best way we know how to do that is just by meeting you at the Connect table right after the gathering. We've got a gift bag for you, and it gives us an opportunity to say hello. Now, we are wrapping up our series in the Psalms, and we will be in Psalm 90 this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Psalm 90. Now, while you flip there, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, what Drew just shared. Our theme for this year has been to make, mature, and to multiply disciples, M3. Uh, so our mission as a church is to bring restoration through the gospel to Cincinnati and the world. And each year, uh, we pick a specific way that we intend to do that. And uh, make, mature, and multiply has been the way that we've uh, tried to flesh that out this year. We've done that through uh, taking some international mission trips and one we've taken and one we're getting ready to go to, uh, the health and wellness event that we will be uh, hosting on September 23rd and by rolling out the Next Steps Discipleship Guide. I know that many of you have already gone through that and it's been extremely helpful because we all know that we are called to make disciples and some of us are kind of figuring out, okay, what's my next steps? How do I do that? Which is why Drew was a big part of putting together that guide that we would love to put in your hands. Uh, we want to be a church that makes the last command that Jesus gave to his disciples to go and make disciples our first priority. And so that's what we have sought to do as a church. Now, as you turn to Psalm 90, I wanna preface where we're going a little bit by maybe referring to a cliche that all of us are familiar with. Life is short. Time moves fast. Uh, there are a lot of other ones maybe that we could look at that kind of carry with it the exact same meaning. And the older I've gotten, the more I've come to grips with the fact that those aren't just cliches, but they're reality. Uh, in 11 days, I will turn 33. And I remember whenever I used to think that yeah, thank you, right? <laughs> okay, I've made it this far, like praise the Lord. Uh, I used to think that early 30s was super old. I don't feel that way anymore, right? I mean, now that's like, you know, 30s, the new 20. Uh, you know, I, I think about the fact that my high school reunion, my 10-year high school reunion was five years ago, and that just doesn't feel right. I think the, the real kicker for me is that our firstborn son will start first grade this Wednesday, which is crazy because it feels like yesterday that I was holding him in my arms for the very first time. Time flies. Life is short. Minutes move faster than we can imagine. And I could keep going with personal examples, but I don't need to, right? Because you experience that reality as well. You, you can look back at milestones throughout your life, Maybe your first day of, of sixth grade or, you know, this, the moment that you graduated high school or uh, whenever you first started your job. And it feels like that was last week, but that was years, maybe a decade ago. You know that if you opened the photo album on your phone right now, in one quick swipe, you could get to memories that happened years ago. 
But in your mind, it almost feels like that happened a couple weeks ago. Life moves fast, and it's uncomfortable to think about the swiftness of time. It's uncomfortable to think about the brevity of life, but it's also necessary because if we don't, we might find ourselves wasting our life. We might find ourselves becoming so occupied with the distractions of this world or the cares of our own personal life that we ignore the reality of eternity and the brevity of life. You see, the message of Psalm 90 is this, that reflecting upon the brevity of your life, the brief nature of your life, will compel you to live with an eternal perspective. It was Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist preacher of the Great Awakening, who prayed, God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Now, why did he pray that? Because he wanted to live with an eternal perspective. He wanted to weigh every thought, action, and desire against the backdrop of eternity. And Psalm 90 teaches us to pray a similar prayer. You see, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, which makes it the oldest prayer that's in the Psalter. We know that a lot of the Psalms were written by David or Asaph or someone else. This is the only Psalm that is attributed to Moses. And so it's a unique Psalm in that regard, in that it's so old. Many, many people believe that this is a prayer that Moses taught the people of God to pray a prayer of repentance and dependence upon the Lord while they were in the wilderness, while they were journeying, while they were trusting God for their every next step. Moses taught them to pray this prayer. And I want you to find that although this prayer is thousands of years old, it still offers immeasurable wisdom and hope for you and I. It is no less relevant now than it was to those people of God who are wandering through the wilderness with God. The prayer of Moses almost acts like, like a skilled photographer that is rightfully adjusting the lens of our life. Because often we get out of focus. Often our view is blurry, but Psalm 90 puts God at the center of the frame. He is our focal point against the background of eternity. And when rightly viewed, Psalm 90 teaches us how to live with an eternal perspective before an eternal God. With that being said, I want you to look at Psalm 90 with me, and we'll read verses 1 through 17. It is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that as Jimmy said earlier, you are different than us. Not just higher in degree, but different in essence. God, you are wholly other. And that should promote a sense of awe and worship from our hearts. Lord, that we would come to you and say, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, satisfy us in yourself with your steadfast love. And may your favor be upon us that you would establish the work of our hands. Yes, God, establish the work of our hands. And we pray all of this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. I want to break this sermon out into two sections, and I believe that the first is the most important. It is the three contrasts in this passage in verses 1 through 11 that reveal the gap that exists between us and God. The gap that exists between us and God. Here we read that He is the everlasting God. Jeremiah 10.6 says that, Lord, there is none like you. God is before all things. And whenever I say that God is before all things, I'm not simply making a chronological distinction. It's true that as the creator of all things, and He who was never created because He has always been, He is chronologically before all things, but He is also preeminent. He is set apart. He didn't just pre-exist. He is the God who has created everything. The distinction between us and God, although we are in His image, is one of creature and creator. So to personally encounter this God would produce an awe that can be compared to nothing else in the world. Well, let us remember the author of this psalm. It's Moses. I imagine that that sense of awe and wonder is how Moses felt as he was there in the desert and saw a burning bush completely engulfed in flames and yet not consumed. And as he turned his gaze toward that bush, he heard a voice emerge from the flame saying, Moses, Moses. And God spoke to Moses and said that he had heard the cry of his people, that he would personally deliver his people from the captivity of Egypt and the oppression that they were under, that he would lead them to the promised land that he had promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. And then Moses said, well, if, if the people ask whenever I go back, if I say that the God of our fathers spoke to me, who should I tell them spoke to me? And God says, I am who I am, Yahweh. This personal name of God communicates that he has always been, he will always be, and there is none like him. He is wholly other. There is none like him, and he does not depend upon anything. He is fully independent in himself, which leads us to the first gap between us and God that this passage reveals that God is independent 
and we are dependent. We need a dwelling place, but God does not need a place to dwell. He is set apart. Moses directs our attention first to the Lord in verse 1, saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, what is he teaching us here? That God has always been the dwelling place for his people. We are a dependent people that rely on the Lord alone. Now, at this point, we know that Moses is most likely leading the people in the wilderness. Whenever we look at Numbers 33, Moses documents that the people of God have been in 42 different locations, and yet they say, he says, God has been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Christian, may this offer you comfort that because God is everywhere, God is with you anywhere, that you are not alone in your suffering, that he is with you in the waiting room, He's with you whenever you put your head in your hands. He's with you when the tears roll down your face. God is your dwelling place. And our wandering hearts will only find their home in Him. You see, in Christian circles, we often use the word lost to describe our state before knowing Christ. We often use the word lost to describe someone who perhaps doesn't have a personal relationship with God. And why is that? Because to be without a relationship with God, to be disconnected from Him, is to be spiritually homeless. It is to live as an orphan, aimless, without hope in the world, helpless to save yourself. And yet, you might be sitting here this morning, and you'd say, you know what, that's how I would describe myself. I would say, I'm I'm lost. I I, I don't know where to go. I've, I've tried to find a home in different friend groups, or my career, or educational accomplishments, or even by checking religious boxes. But there's still this weariness and restlessness in my heart. Would you see that this passage has a word for you, that the Lord alone is the dwelling place for those that he has created in his image? This is why Jesus himself in John 15 would tell his disciples, Abide in me, dwell in me. And so whenever Christ says, come to me all who are weary laden and you will find rest, that's a personal invitation to you. That the Lord would not just be the dwelling place of his people in a general sense throughout all generations, but that your heart would find a home in him and that you would come to Christ, that he would be your all and that you would see that he alone is worthy of worship. You see, our tendency to quickly forget this truth, I think, is what causes so much difficulty in this life because we begin living like the things of this world and all that it has to offer are ultimately intended to give us rest, to be our home. And whenever we live like that, contentment is impossible to find. You will never be satisfied with the things in this world, but whenever you know God as your dwelling place, You agree with Psalm 16 that says, in his presence there is fullness of joy. 
I also want you to see that God sustains his people, not just the wilderness generation, but all generations found their dwelling place in the Lord. And as a church family, this is a comfort to us as well. Lord willing, in a matter of months, the Oaks will move into a permanent facility. Uh, It will be our fifth location in six years. And some of you have been along for the ride the whole time from setting up in 20th Century Theater to John P. Parker to Christ the King to the Rec Center, and then eventually we will retire all of our setters and breakers and we'll be in a, in a permanent facility. But having our name on a permanent sign out front doesn't change the fact that God is our dwelling place and our hope is in Him alone. It is He who works through us and carries out his will in us. And we look to him. As Moses surveyed the landscape around him, he observed the mountains, and they, they caused him to worship. He said, before the mountains were brought forth, God, or you had ever formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. All that exists is the work of your hands. We see that God is the everlasting God, that God is eternal, and this leads us to the second gap between us and God in this passage, that God is eternal and we are finite. You can say God is eternal and we are temporal, but saying finite uh, communicates even more limitation than that of time, that we are finite. You see, the contrast between the end of verse 2 and verse 3 is God's eternality and our mortality. We are born, and we will all inevitably die. And that changes the way that we live. Perhaps it's not the most cheery thing to think about, but it's essential, it's necessary. One day, you and I will take our last breath. Look with me at verse 3. Moses says, you return man to dust, and say, return, O children of man. Now, why are there quotation marks around return, O children of man, in your Bible? It's because Moses is recounting the curse that was the consequence for the sin that took place in the garden, right? So, we can assume that Adam and Eve would have lived forever with access to the tree of life, and yet God said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And in Genesis 3.19, we read one of the aspects of the curse, and it is that we will all face physical death. And so here Moses is recounting this, saying, return, O children of man. You have a finite existence. Yes, God is eternal. And while your soul might be everlasting, each one of us will have a day that we breathe our last breath. We can't deny this reality as hard as we try with anti-aging creams or plastic surgery or dyeing our gray hairs. We will all one day die. Paul restates this truth in no uncertain terms. In Romans 6.23, whenever he says that the wages of sin is death. Now consider the eternal nature of this everlasting God. Verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Moses is saying, okay, hypothetically, if someone was to live a thousand years, that would be a long life. But even still, that's just a drop in the ocean of God's eternality. A a thousand years is like a day. Let's put that in some mathematical terms. 
the, the fall of Rome, something that took place 1,500 years ago. And we just think, oh, man, that's like such distant history in the eyes of God of 1,000 years or like a day that happened Friday afternoon. Think about the Exodus, God leading his people out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea. And we just think, man, that's like, you know, first pages of your Bible, second book kind of stuff. Seems like so long ago. In the eyes of God, that was last Wednesday. Then Moses makes an even, even shorter comparison by saying it's like a watch in the night. A thousand years to God is just like a four-hour period. Look at the eternality of God. Consider that he is eternal and that you are finite, that you are temporary. Then he just kind of rolls through a couple more metaphors to really make his point. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. Our lives are like a flash flood. They are like a dream. You ever, you ever go to sleep and you're like, you're, you're laying there in bed and you're thinking, oh, I can't sleep. And then, and then the next thing you know, you close your eyes and your alarm clock goes off and it's been seven hours. You're like, how did that happen? Well, according to Moses, some people will get to the end of the 70 years of their life and it will feel like that. Man, where did it all go? Where did the time go? We're like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed and in the evening it fades and withers. Our lives are quick. The New Testament echoes this truth. James 4.14 says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Consider the fragility of life. Many of you guys know that in, in 2021, I, I got COVID really bad, just a really bad case, hospitalized, left side of my lungs weren't working, coughing up blood. And I thought, like, is this it? And there's something sobering about thinking, one day I'll preach my last sermon. One day I'll, I'll kiss my wife for the very last time. That my heart, before it even started beating, was assigned a certain number of beats. And there is nothing that I can do in my strength or earthly power to add a single one. And that is true for each and every one of us. The brevity of life makes us squirm, yes, especially if you're, if you're here and, and, you're, and you're making your 10-year plan and, yeah, you've got your whole life ahead of you. But is there a better time to consider, to reflect on the fact that it does move fast? The third gap that we see is that God is holy and we are sinful. Verses 7 through 11, Moses says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, we don't know the exact location that Moses prayed this prayer or taught it to the people, but here's what we know for certain. He was not praying this with his feet standing in the promised land. Why is that? Because in Numbers 13 through 14, whenever the 12 spies returned from looking at the promised land, only two of them said, we can do it, right? And so the people began to grumble and complain and what happened is that they were more intimidated by the inhabitants of the land that scared them 
than they were emboldened by the fact that God the Lord was with them. And so the consequence for that, God said, is this generation will not enter the promised land. But what about Moses? Why didn't he get there? Well, Numbers 20, just, you know, a few chapters later, Moses becomes angry with the people. We see that man, a lot is going on. Aaron dies. Miriam dies. He was told to strike the rock once, strike it once. He struck it twice in his anger. And the Lord said, because you didn't honor me as holy among the people. It wasn't just about striking the rock twice. He says, because you didn't honor me as holy before the people, you will not enter the promised land. Now, this is completely an aside, but I love that we even see the grace of God in the fact that it is Moses and Elijah that appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see he is in the presence of God. He is there with Christ. But here we know that Moses was well acquainted with his sin and the holiness of God. Moses was well acquainted with the sin of humanity in light of a holy God. And in verses 7 through 8, we're called to reflect on our own sin before God. God doesn't just shrug his shoulders at our sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. God takes our sin seriously. And on the other hand, perhaps we are often guilty of taking our sin far too lightly. That's even evidence in some of the ways that we think that we can manage it on our own. Oh yeah, I'll just fix this or I'll just change it. That's just a bad habit. No, we need to cry out to God in repentance because unless we do that before a holy God, there is no changing us, sanctifying us or saving us. And there will be one of two responses to God dealing with your sin. And this affects every single person in this room. Either you will personally pay the penalty for your sin in a place of conscious torment forever called hell, or you will trust your life to Christ and God in his mercy, grace, and kindness, his overwhelming love for you will count Christ's death on the cross as a substitute for your sin, that God's wrath is completely absorbed in Christ giving his perfect life in your place and that in his resurrection, he can give you life. Now I say this because there is no option C. And perhaps some of you are, are sitting here thinking, you know, man, I got a lot going on. And that's just something I'm going to have to deal with later. But friend, you might not get the chance. Today is the day of salvation for all who believe. You will stand before God one day and you will give an account for your life, and you will either say that I am a sinner condemned before God or Christ was condemned in my place, that I would have life in his name. That's why Moses here says, we're brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. Now, what's he speaking of there? He's, he's speaking of the curse from the garden. If you are a Christian, it is true that there is therefore now no condemnation for you, that, that you do not have to fear death because you will enter into eternal life with God. But even still, because of, because of God's anger and the consequence that was placed upon all of humanity in the garden, we will all come to a physical end. Not only that, he says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We might be able to fool others. We might be able to, to keep up public appearances, 
but every single one of our secret sins are known to God. In verses 9 through 11, he talks again about just the brevity of our life in light of the holiness of God, saying, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. It happens quick. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. Even those who, who live a godly life experience heartbreak and difficulty and hardship. He says, they're soon gone and we fly away. So who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who lives like this? Who rightly sees this gap between us and God and lives like it? Now here we find great hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God knowing this gap between us and him would make a way for us to be reconciled to him that he would send a bridge, that God would send his only son, the second person of the Trinity, to be, yes, eternal God, and yet take on flesh so that you and I could have a relationship with God again. And what Moses prayed in faith, we have seen fulfilled in Christ, our mediator. So yes, there's a gap between independent God and dependent man, and yet Christ is the bridge, the one who is the independent God who became God incarnate. Think about that for a moment. It feels like a paradox, doesn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, without boundary or limitation, descended so that he could become a little lower than the angels for a little while, that he would do what we could never do ourselves. Omnipotent God takes on flesh and experiences hunger, exhaustion, thirst. That the author of life laid his life down. That Jesus Christ gave his life for you, hung suspended upon a cross above the world that he upheld with the word of his power. And why does this matter? Because it shows us in Christ that God cares, that God can sympathize with your weaknesses because he experienced the same human suffering and temptation that you do. Second, although God is eternal and we are infinite, Christ comes as the bridge, eternal God experiencing as a man, both birth and death. Think about that, the alpha and omega. He who had no beginning had a birthday. He, he who has no end, existing into all eternity, upon the cross uttered, it is finished, and breathed his last. Three days later, rising again from the dead to show his eternal reign and conquering of death, sin, and Satan forever. Why does this matter? Because only an eternal God could take on flesh to be a mediator for us and thus offer eternal life to all who believe. Unless the eternal God was to become man, he could not offer eternal life to humanity. Bridging the gap. God is holy and we are sinful. And yet the gospel declares that the holy God bore humanity's sin. Jesus was the spotless lamb. 
He was unblemished by sin. He was born of a virgin. Why? So that he would not inherit the sinful nature of Adam. It's not corrupted in any way, but completely pure, which is why he can become our substitute for sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what does that mean for you? As you're sitting here, perhaps even reflecting on the regrets that you have this past week, maybe even the sin from this morning, maybe even what you are anticipating struggling with tomorrow, it means that if you have trusted in Christ, there is no longer a gap between you and God because of what Christ has done. You have been declared holy, unblemished, and blameless in the sight of God. That means that the Holy Spirit now dwells within you We not only find our dwelling place in God, but he has made his dwelling place in us that we may grow in holiness. That we would no longer be bound to the chains of sin. And because this is true, we live our lives with an eternal perspective because Christ has granted us eternal life. The second section of this sermon is three requests that teach us how to live with eternity in mind. Three requests that teach us how to live with eternity in mind. Whenever you realize that your days are numbered, that you only have a set amount, perhaps you recalibrate the weight that you give to each 24-hour period of your life. You have a set number of days, and the result of embracing a finite existence is gaining a heart of wisdom that only God can give. That's why we make the first request, that the Lord would teach us to number our days. It's the first thing that Moses prays in response to what he has just written in verses 1 through 11. Look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Abby and I, we have a, an index card that is taped to our mirror in our bathroom. And next to that index card are both of our boys' names. And, and right beside Brooks's name, our oldest son, is the number 4,535. And the number next to Charlie's name, our three-year-old son, is 5,445. Now, we wrote that in March of this year. And that is the number of days, if our boys were to uh, turn 18 and move out to college, that is the number of days that we have with them in our house until they turn 18 years old. And whenever I look at that index card, and I see that, that it's just in the thousands, and I wish that I could do something to, to add numbers to that, it changes the way that I, that I interact with them that day. It changes the, the things that I prioritize. What, what good would it be if they become pro athletes? If they have to lie at my funeral about the kind of man that I was. And each one of us should consider that there is a number unknown to us next to our name in heaven. You have a set number of days, and whenever we pray, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. It changes the way that we live. Perhaps you've been asked the question, if you knew that you only had a week to live, what would that change? What would you do? Now, how many of us would say, 
well, you know what? I would try to make more money, and I would spend more time scrolling on Instagram, and I would definitely remain bitter at that person that I used to be friends with. None of us would say that. That would be crazy to think, I'm going I'm to waste my life doing temporal things or things that I would ultimately regret in the grand scheme of eternity. No, wisdom says commit yourself to things that will outlast you. Cherish your relationships, and above anything else, be right with the God that you will soon stand in front of. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Sometimes I think we confuse wisdom with knowledge. Wisdom isn't knowledge, because wisdom isn't knowing everything. It's applying everything that you know. It's applying the things that you have learned and what God has taught you. Often our issue is not information, but one of application. So wisdom says money is a tool to invest in God's kingdom because ultimately that will outlast me and is far above me. Wisdom says that choosing a spouse isn't just about finding someone that makes you happy, but being concerned about someone that is going to help you be holy. Wisdom says, my integrity cannot be bought in the workplace. It is not for sale when it comes to promotions or getting ahead. Wisdom says that an impressive GPA that is gained unethically is a lot less important than a pure heart before God. Wisdom says, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. So that's our prayer as well. Second, we pray that God would satisfy us with himself. God, satisfy us with yourself. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. That word pity is the same as mercy or compassion. Lord, be kind to us because we know that we don't deserve it. We know that we have sinned. And yet Moses knew the character of God perhaps better than any living person at this time because there was a moment in which Moses prayed in Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory. And hidden in the cleft of the rock, God passed by him and declared his name. And you know how God described himself? I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Moses knew that God responds favorably to needy and repentant people. We don't get on his nerves. He delights to answer this prayer, which is exactly why he sent his own son The first request is that the Lord would number our days. And this second request is that he would satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love so that we would be glad for all the days that he has taught us to number. The image of the rising sun after daybreak is perhaps a helpful analogy that is used here. After darkness comes the light. And here Moses is praying that God would satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love. Now, we should be aware that we often seek satisfaction in the wrong places, which is why Moses is saying, Lord, you satisfy us with your steadfast love. This word for steadfast love is the word kased. It is, it is God's covenant love, his unfailing love. It's a love that is unconditional. It's not transactional, like, God, if we do this, then you will do this. It is, Lord, in spite of us, 
based upon your favor, based upon your character. Not the worthiness of the one who is loved, but the character of the one who loves. May, Lord, you grant us satisfaction in you alone because we don't deserve it. And I can't help but wonder if Moses here perhaps has God's daily provision of manna in mind for the people. He says, satisfy us in the morning. We wake up hungry, God. And yet every single day except for the Sabbath, God would provide everything that they needed so a hungry people could walk right outside of their tent and have their fill. That the Lord would provide, that the Lord would satisfy his people every single morning. And Moses is saying, in the same way that you satisfy us with manna in the morning, Lord, would you satisfy us with your steadfast love? And yet Jesus picks up on the same imagery in John 6, doesn't he? He says, you know, it wasn't Moses that gave you the the bread of heaven, the manna. It was my Father who is in heaven. And it is he who also gives the bread of life. And those standing there listening to Jesus said, sir, give us this bread always. We feel that hunger spiritually in our hearts. Lord, give us this bread that we may be satisfied. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, you and I were created that a heart for, that hungers for something, someone greater than us. And the hunger of our heart can only be satisfied in a personal relationship with Christ. Perhaps this is a good moment to ask you, what are you feeding your heart? If you're dissatisfied, if you're here and, and you feel like you're kind of wandering, if you feel like you're like, like the Lord feels distant or your relationship with God feels cold or perhaps like you've, you've, you're wrestling with a lot of doubts and, and maybe you can't trust Him even though you know who He is, what are you feeding your heart? May you find your hunger satisfied in the bread of life alone. As we continue reading, we come to verse 16, or verse 15 actually. Moses says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses here is praying for balance, right? He's saying, these days have been so hard. Lord, would you at least give us as as many days that are great? And yet, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 in the New Testament gives us a better promise, saying that this light and momentary affliction won't just be balanced in eternity with God. No, this light and momentary affliction cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory that can be found in God alone. And so we pray, Lord, satisfy us with yourself. Third and finally, Lord, establish the work of our hands. The third and final request that that Moses prays here is that the Lord would have favor upon his people. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We see that God is above us, and yet Moses can, can, can call him our God. He is transcendent, but he is also imminent. He is above us, yet near to us. And I believe that verse 17, asking that God would establish the work of our hands, Maybe silence is a discouraging lie that we're all tempted to believe. Because perhaps some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, if my life is short, 
if, if I don't know how many days that I have left, then does what I do really matter? Does my life really matter? And yet what this passage shows us is that because we worship an everlasting God, the things that God accomplishes through us will outlast us. Because we have eternal life, the things that we do in God's name can have an eternal significance. So what might seem menial or mundane can have a God-sized impact on the world and through eternity. This means that God hears the prayers that you pray for the salvation of your parents and your children. It means that those Sundays that it feels like you're just putting a chair on a gym floor off of a rack that you found in one of these closets, you are simultaneously preparing a place that someone can encounter God personally for the very first time. It means that if you give $20 to a missionary that we support, that God in his kindness can produce a, a return that can't be measured. Because God is everlasting, what he does through us will outlast us. And this is our prayer as a church. Verse 16 says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses has such bold faith here that he is presuming rightly upon God's faithfulness for generations to come, saying, Lord, may you show your good deeds not only to us, but to our children. Would we pray bold prayers of faith, saying, Lord, if you are to establish us as a people, as a church in this city, in the world for decades to come, centuries to come, if Christ hasn't returned by then, Lord, what would you do through us? What would God do through you? What does it look like for you to pray, God, establish the work of my hands? I want you to think of this in four categories, perhaps for you to reflect on in your quiet time tomorrow. Go ahead and set your alarm. Go ahead and think about that 30-minute slot that you have tomorrow to think about this. Think about this afternoon and get specific. What are the works of your hands? Four things. First, to follow Christ intentionally. What does it look like for you to follow Christ intentionally? Perhaps you'd say, you know, I just need to be in the Word. I need to be a part of, of a church community where I'm alongside other believers. I, you know, I need to spend time praying instead of just stressing out about stuff or just venting to other people. What does it look like for you to follow Christ intentionally? What does it look like for you to give sacrificially? to consider the time, the talents, and the treasure that God has entrusted to you. And say, I want, to, I want to give sacrificially. I don't want to be a, a consumer when it comes to my faith. I want to be someone who contributes to the mission of God. Three, to invest relationally. What does it look like for you to begin investing relationally in another believer or to say, you know what, I need someone to invest in me, to become a, a part of a missional community group or to come to starting point so you can figure out next steps for uh, linking arms with a church family, or maybe the person that you came with today said, would you want to do a Bible study together? What does it look like for you to invest relationally for the kingdom? And finally, to live missionally, to be bold in your faith, to maybe ask a friend, hey, would you want to read through the book of John with me? To begin praying daily for someone to know the Lord. 
Because Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we pray, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands that you have called us to. And may this reality cause us to live today like it will matter a million years from now. Because according to Psalm 90, it does. Let's pray.